It's really great to see you. Uh, and uh, even though a lot of you look like surgeons <laughs> this morning, and we understand why, and we're just glad that this is the first step uh, in getting back together. It's great to be with you. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts, the second chapter of the book of Acts. You know, one of the Bible's first declarations, one of God's first statements of fact is when he said, it is not good that man should be alone. And if that's true in the negative, then the positive is also true. It is good that people should be together. It's how God designed us. We are hardwired to be social creatures. And this is the reason why COVID-19 was and is so difficult for so many people. It's the reason why depression has been on the rise, anxiety has been on the rise, even sadly the rate of suicide is on the rise, is because of the separation. We have been apart for nearly three months. We've been locked down, we've been isolated, we've been sheltered in place, we've been socially distant from one another, but now we're starting to get together again. And as the government allows us more capacity, and frankly, as people just feel a little more confident to get out, uh, we'll see that on the increase. Now, this week happens to be a very special week in the church calendar. I mean the church historically. Today is Pentecost Sunday. Today, the church celebrates the birth of the church. And um, one of the most exciting places you could ever be in a hospital is the delivery room. There's something wonderful about seeing a new life come into this world. In Acts chapter 2, we, we have the opportunity to go into the delivery room of the early church and see a promise of Jesus fulfilled. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Acts chapter 2, we get to see that live birth. And because it is Pentecost Sunday, it's so fitting that we are starting to gather together again. And I'd love this to be a rebirth of our church. You know, this is sort of like a brand new church plant doing this all over again after a pandemic. And there are certain things that we learned that are good things we learned during the time we've been locked up. And uh, we should never forget those lessons. We should bring those best practices personally and corporately into the new paradigm in which we find ourselves. Of course, when we talk about the birth of the church in the book of Acts, things for us today were quite diff are quite different than how they were back in the book of Acts. There was no social distancing in Jerusalem at the time. There was no pandemic going on in Judea at the time. But there is now. It is a rebirth of our church, but it is vastly different than the first church, which is why we need to be patient with each other going forward. And it's why I'm asking you to be patient with us as we're sort of trying to navigate week by week the best way to do this while being responsible and loving to people and uh, covering all of our bases, taking our precautions in order to serve you. And I kind of see it this way, even though we are allowed only 25% capacity, it's better than nothing, and it's a step toward 100%. And so I kind of look at it like I don't want to be guilty of what it says in the book of Zechariah chapter 4, 
Verse 10, God remarked that they despised the days of small beginnings. I don't know if you ever read that text in Zechariah, but let me just explain it to you and the reason God said it. When the children of Israel came back from captivity to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, only a very small percentage returned. Less than 50,000 Jews came back to participate in the rebuilding of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. About a million stayed back in Babylon. So they were getting discouraged. They're building this temple. They're finding ruins all around the city. It's a bigger task than they anticipated. They were getting discouraged. So God said, don't despise the day of small beginnings. It's okay to start small. It's okay. And he said, you started it and you're going to finish it because it's not by might. It's not by power. It is by my spirit, says the Lord. That's where that text finds its context. Well, we're in Acts, the second chapter, and we're going to look at several verses. But you ought to know that Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, predates the Christian church. In fact, it predates the life of Jesus. The Jews had been celebrating Pentecost for centuries. I'll explain what it was as an Old Testament feast. But the day of Pentecost had been celebrated by Jews primarily remembering the fact that God gave the law to Moses. They believed 50 days after they left Egypt. That that is not the context of the original feast. But by the time of Jesus, the synagogues were celebrating that 50 days after the children of Israel left Egypt, God gave them the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They're celebrating the law. And and I wanted to bring that up because it's quite different in Acts chapter 2. While the Jews were celebrating the giving of the law, the early church was celebrating the giving of new life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. A huge contrast. John chapter 1, for the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So looking at Acts chapter 2, I want you with me to consider four experiences that marked the first church on the day of Pentecost. First experience, they were together. They were together. Verse 1, Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. The word Pentecost, Pentecostes, is a Greek word that means 50 or 50th because it marked originally the 50th day after the second day of the Passover. There were seven weeks plus one day, so 50 days. Originally, it was called the Feast of Weeks. It celebrated the first gathering of the wheat harvest, so it was called the Feast of First Fruits or the ingathering or the Feast of Weeks, but it means 50, 50 days. The church was gathered in Acts chapter 2, and this happened 50 days after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You probably know that our Lord, after he was raised from the dead, spent 40 days in his post-resurrected body with his disciples. 
and then he ascended into heaven. So they were waiting for 10 days without Jesus' physical presence when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. They were praying and they were waiting. And that's why it says when the day of Pentecost had fully come. You know, I think every word and every verse is an important note. And it just doesn't say it came, it fully came. What does that mean? Well, it's a reference to the fact that the days began when? At night. In Judaism, days began at night. So um, Sunday began last night at sunset. That's how the Jewish calendar works. So Pentecost begins technically the evening before at sunset. When it says it had fully come, simply means it's the morning. The daylight's out. It's not nighttime. It's not the beginning. It has fully come. It is daytime. And they were together. They were together in two ways. First, they were together physically, for the text tells us they were in one place. I don't know if you're like me, but I always ask questions. I always go, in what place? They were in, what, in one place, but in, in which place? Probably, we don't know for certain, but probably it was the upper room. The upper room where Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples. The upper room where they had been hiding for fear of the Jews until the resurrection. The upper room where Jesus appeared to them while they were hiding. It must have been a large, spacious room because we discover whatever place it was, there were 120 people in that room. And so they were all together in one place. Not only were they together physically, but they were together spiritually. For notice again in verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Luke likes that term. The guy who wrote the book of Acts, Luke, likes the term in one accord. He uses the word... 11 times in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul uses it once in the book of Romans, but Luke likes the term in one accord, and it's a very important word. It is a Greek word, homothumadon. It comes from a combination of two Greek words, homo, the same, thumos, which means heat or heated. When you combine the words together, it means to be in one spirit or to be of one purpose or to be with one mind. In other words, they weren't just together physically. They were on the same page in purpose, in spirit. They were in complete harmony. So it's not that they were in a place. It's what they were in their personal disposition toward one another. And, and one thing we know above all things when it comes to the church. The church is not a place. The church is people. You are the church. Even though we mistakenly say, hey, let's go to church today. Or when are we going back to church? Or I'll meet you at the church. We, we talk about it in terms of a place, but really it's not a place. It is a people. It's not about physicality. It's always about spirituality. And I think we learned that more during COVID-19 than any other time because we saw much higher online involvement than ever before. And uh, I even I got this... Uh, Throughout this pandemic, I've gotten notes from different people 
uh, in the country and in the world who are tuning into our YouTube channel and watching these things online. But I got one this week that was so cool. This guy wrote me from Mongolia. Not just Mongolia, he said it's outer Mongolia. So it's like the remote of the remote. And he's a young pastor and he says, I found your YouTube channel and I'm basically stealing your sermons to teach my people. It's sort of my, it is my sermon prep. And I thought, good, welcome to it. They're yours. So we have learned during this time that church is all about connecting with people at a spiritual level far more than a place. That's why, in the truest sense, the church has never been closed during this time. It's just been different. And once again, it's, it's different today. Having said that, there does come a time when the church does need to actually physically be together. That's, that's what is meant by the word fellowship. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And there's a phrase that is used over and over and over again in the New Testament. It's the phrase, one another, 60 times. Not six times, not 16 times, six zero times. The phrase, one another, comes. Love one another, serve one another, be kind to one another. It's very hard to do the one another's when you're not with one another. You need proximity for full, satisfying fellowship. Fellowship can't be done alone. Fellowship cannot be done on a podcast or a television. It requires the presence of other people. Psalm 68, God sets the solitary in families. Technology is fine, temporarily. But the ultimate goal is proximity. I was given a a report, an article from Harvard School of Public Health that stated people who attended religious services at least once a week were significantly less likely to die from deaths of despair. I found that a very interesting phrase, including deaths related to suicide, drug overdose, and alcohol poisoning. One researcher from Harvard by the name of Ying Chen stated... These results are perhaps especially striking amidst the present COVID-19 pandemic. They are striking in part because clinicians are facing such extreme work demands and difficult conditions, and in part because many religious services have been suspended. We need to think what might be done to extend help to those at risk for despair. End quote. Well, the New Testament answer for that is fellowship. To be together in one place, in one accord. And though we completely understand if some of you are feeling vulnerable or scared or you have physical conditions that keep you at home, stay home. But eventually you are going to have to emerge and reintegrate. And they were. They were together. That's the first experience. Second experience of the early church on the day of Pentecost, not only were they together, they were empowered. Verse 2, and suddenly. So I like that word, suddenly. It, it, It wasn't on the schedule of service for that day. It just happened. 
at God's wish. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Push the pause button for a moment. Think back to what Jesus told his disciples at the first book that Luke wrote, the Gospel of Luke. At the very end, he told them to wait. He said, tarry, that's the New Testament word, tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. That was the promise. This now is the fulfillment of that promise. Next to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the day of Pentecost is the most monumental day in church history. It's where he baptized believers into the body of Christ. It's where he filled them with his Holy Spirit. Now, Pentecost is unique. It is an atypical, non-repeatable, one-time, never-to-be-repeated-again event in church history. Very unique. It's the birth of the church. But, but the empowering of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time deal. The empowering of the Spirit of God should be done regularly. In fact, it is a command given by Paul to the Ephesians in the present tense. It would be literally translated, be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why is that so important? Because if you're ever going to do spiritual work, you need spiritual power. You'll never do spiritual work in just physical stamina. It requires spiritual power, God's power. Notice in what we just read, there were three phenomena that occurred that day. There was an audible phenomenon, there was a visible phenomenon, and there was an oral phenomenon. First, the audible. It says there was a sound of a rushing wind. This was not a weather condition. This was not a meteorological condition. It doesn't even say it was windy. It's not like, who left the door open? Look at Peter's robes blowing in the wind. It was the sound of wind that got their attention. Why wind? What is that all about? My guess it is a symbol of the presence and the power of God. Think back to your Old Testament. How did God speak to Job after his long stint of waiting on God through a whirlwind? What did Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? He said, the Spirit, like the wind, blows wherever it wants. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it came from and you don't know where it is going. By the way, in both the Hebrew language and the Greek language, there is a single word that is translated um, wind, breath, and spirit. One word. In Hebrew, ruach is translated wind, breath, and spirit. The Holy Spirit is the ruach hakodesh, the holy breath or the holy wind or the holy spirit. 
In the Greek language, same thing, pneuma is the Greek word translated wind, breath, or spirit. So whether it's the breath of God breathing on the dry bones in Ezekiel 37, having them come back to life, or it's the Holy Spirit in salvation blowing wherever it wishes in John chapter 3, the idea is it's emblematic of the power and presence of God. So there was an audible phenomenon. Notice also there was a visible phenomenon. There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And it happened individually, and all 120 gathered in that place, presumably the upper room. Why fire? Again, a symbol of the power and presence of God. How did God speak to Moses? Not just through a bush, but through a burning bush. It was burning but not consumed. Fire. On Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments were given with an array, a display of the fiery glory of God. In the wilderness, uh, at night, there was a pillar of fire that led the children of Israel in their desert wanderings. Then, third, there was an oral phenomenon. Verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. These tongues were not just sort of some ecstatic mumbling. These were known human languages. The word is glossize. It means acquired languages. Verse 8, notice it says, How is it that we hear each in our own language, or our native language, in which we were born? That's the word dialecto. We get the term dialect from it. Not only are these Galileans speaking our language group, they're, they're inflecting our own personal dialects. Let me give you my take on this. I'm going to take you back to the book of Genesis, um, chapter 11. You don't have to go there. Chapter 11, the people of the earth decide that they want to build a tower to reach heaven. Do you remember that story? It's called the Tower of Babel. And so what did God do in response to them building a tower toward heaven? He confounded their speech, their language. Now they couldn't communicate with each other. There's language barriers all over the earth. So they're trying to reach God. At Pentecost, heaven reaches earth. And it is a reverse of the curse at the Tower of Babel. Now the gospel is unleashed to all the world. And Pentecost affirms that Jesus is the Savior for all races, all languages, all tongues, all cultures, all tribes. Pentecost truly was a multinational, multicultural, multilingual event. The gospel is for everyone. So three phenomena, audible, visible, and oral. Actually, I'm going to give you a fourth. There was a proclamational phenomenon. What I mean is, Peter stands up, beginning in verse 14, and boldly proclaims the gospel. And Peter gives, we won't read the whole chapter, it's pretty lengthy, Peter gives an amazing expository sermon. And, and why this is such a phenomenon is because it's Peter. You know, it's not a seminary professor from Hebrew University. It's Peter. 
The guy who was scared to give a witness for Jesus to a servant girl at a garden the night Jesus was arrested and ended up denying Jesus three times. That Peter. The Peter who was so timid and scared now boldly, articulately, powerfully proclaims the gospel in an expository sermon. What happened to Peter? The Holy Spirit happened to Peter. Peter was filled with the Spirit and boldly, clearly proclaimed the gospel. Scared, failing Peter is now a lean, mean, preaching machine. It's a powerful sermon. How do I know that? Because 3,000 people said yes to Jesus that day. Not three, not 300, 3,000 souls were added. Now think back to a promise in the chapter before this, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus promised this. He said, you shall receive power. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Power. Dunamis. The word from which we get our word dynamic or dynamite. It means a new capacity. It means the power to be and do what you could not be and do on your own. The Holy Spirit will fill you. He will empower you. I'm going to take you back to another promise. I'm going to take you back a couple years from this at a different feast in Jerusalem. Jesus was um, there at the feast. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. And it, it says on the last great day of the feast, that was the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the, our Lord stood up in a temple, the temple in Jerusalem, and shouted out because there were thousands of people. He had to get their attention. He didn't just say it to one person. He shouted out. He cried out these words. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Remember that? And then he continued. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I'm sure people were thinking, what on earth is he talking about? flow rivers of living water. So John gives an explanatory note right after he said that. This he spoke of his Holy Spirit, which was not yet given, for Jesus was not yet glorified. Now Jesus is glorified. Now he is ascended. Now the Holy Spirit is given. Power. And Jesus described it as rivers of living water flowing from you. Not just satisfying for you, but flowing from you. And I'm making the distinction because I hear too many of us Christians saying, yes, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, and I'm so happy now, and I'm so contented now, and I'm so awesome now. So what? It's really not for you or just about you. It's about you not being blessed, but you being a blessing. Not being a gulper, but a gusher. Right? It's not just, I get filled up with the water of life. No, the water of life is flowing through me, man, like a fire hose. That's the idea. You become not just contented, you become a conduit to bless others. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, whom you know I love to quote, because he is so quotable. 
said, if there were only one prayer which I might pray before I died, it should be this, Lord, send thy church men, I would add, and women filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Filled with the Holy Spirit. When you're filled, empowered by the Spirit, you get to do and be what you can't do and be on your own. You get to be a gusher. You get to be a blessing. The life of God flows from you. It blesses others. It makes an impact on others. That's the reset. That's the rebirth that I'm after in this church here starting up again. A blessing to our world, a blessing to our community. I want to give you a quick word lesson before we move on. There, there's three little words, three prepositions, actually. Sorry to do this to you. I know you thought, oh, another English class. Here we go. So uh, three prepositions that describe your relationship to the Holy Spirit. Within, upon. Within, upon. Say that with me. Within, upon. So Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will be with you. And he went on to describe that, he said, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, is going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, of sin because they don't believe in me. And then he said, the Holy Spirit will then dwell in you. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you'll have power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So within, upon. The Holy Spirit is with every single human being. Every single person on earth. The Holy Spirit is with them. What's he doing? He's trying to convince them they need help. He's trying to convince every person they need a savior. Some cooperate and say yes. Many say no. But the Holy Spirit is with people to draw them to Christ, draw them to the solution. If they say yes to the solution, yes to Christ, the Holy Spirit then goes from just being with them to being in them, dwelling in them. And he abides with you. He's, he's inside of you. But then there's a third relationship with the Holy Spirit, and that is when He comes upon you for service. So you could look at it this way. The Holy Spirit comes after us to make us saved. He comes into us to make us sanctified, and He comes upon us to make us supercharged, to fill us so that we can be and do what we can't be and do without Him. So they were together, they were empowered. A third experience, they were misunderstood. In fact, I might even say because they were together and because they were empowered, they were misunderstood. The world has always misunderstood the people of God. Verse 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? To make it worse, it wasn't just that there were Jerusalemites doing this, but they were Galileans. Galileans were regarded like uneducated hicks. So it's like, can you believe it? Galileans know our individual dialects. That's a phenomenon. How is it, verse 8, that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and 
proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, they're drunk. They are full of new wine. This was so out of the ordinary, the only conclusion some could come up with is, these guys are knocking back the happy juice. It's, it's happy hour at the church. They're a little tipsy. They're drunk. They're full of new wine. The world will always misunderstand the church. This should not surprise us. If you are just like crossing your fingers, saying, I can't wait for the day when the world finally legitimizes the church. Ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. They, they misunderstood Jesus. His own family misunderstood him. Jesus' own family thought he was crazy. The, the, the King James says, beside himself. That's a nice way of saying nuts. His disciples didn't understand him. He'd say, talk, he'd talk about the resurrection and death of himself, and they would look at each other and go, what is he talking about? The leadership in Jerusalem didn't under, misunderstood Jesus. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it up again. They thought he meant the temple proper, the edifice. He was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus was always misunderstood by people. Paul was misunderstood by people. He's preaching the resurrection when he was on trial in Caesarea, and Festus stands up and says, your much learning is driving you crazy. So Jesus was misunderstood. Paul was misunderstood. I have a guess you're going to be misunderstood if you follow that same Jesus. In fact, Paul even said, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. Neither can he, because they are spiritually discerned. Expecting an unbeliever to understand spiritual things is like expecting a blind person to appreciate a beautiful, colorful sunset. Or like somebody who is hearing impaired to enjoy the subtleties of Bach and Mendelssohn and Beethoven. They lack the capability. And unless the Spirit of God opens up an individual heart, they are not going to understand spiritual things. So, they were misunderstood on that day of Pentecost. They were mocked, and they were misunderstood. Now, would you agree that our culture presently is divided and polarized? In a number of ways, but I'm, I mean principally over people of faith. Uh, the world has cast the Christian as being ignorant, anti-science, naive, bigoted, superstitious, closed-minded, homophobic, and casting judgment down on everybody who's not them. According to Barna Research, Christians feel that they are misunderstood, persecuted, and marginalized. Though they strongly believe that their faith is crucial and a force for good in today's world, 54% feel misunderstood when it comes to living out their faith in the world. 52% say they feel persecuted. 44% feel marginalized. 38% feel silenced. 
31% are afraid to speak up, and 23% are afraid to look stupid. It's the fear of man. Now, in this pandemic, you probably know this, churches reopening have become a sore spot for some. It's become a polarizing issue. It's even become a politicized issue. It's even become a weaponized issue. I even read this week about a lady in Austin who couldn't believe that some churches thought it was okay to reopen. And she said, you know, this close proximity that the, these Christians have with one another, all those people singing, they're really anti-science. You know where she said that? Standing in line at a Walmart with a crowd of people waiting there, she had her mask dangling from her ear. Anti-science. So some have said you can't open the church. It's a huge health risk. You're not showing love if you reopen. Others are saying it's all a big hoax. It's just a conspiracy. Here, read this article. Here, watch this video. Here, send this link. On and on. Caught in the middle of all this are the church leaders who no matter what they do, they're going to be judged as wrong by someone. Listen, I think it's okay to do both. I think you can be loving and considerate and still open at the same time. We can socially distance, we can disinfect, and we do, and we will, but we can still open and have fellowship. Listen, church leaders don't hate their congregants. It's not like, yeah, we want to get them all together to kill them all. We want you safe. We want you healthy. And we'll take every precaution necessary, but we need to be together again. And that's why we are. We think you can do both. They were together. They were empowered. They were misunderstood. Fourth and finally, they were scriptural, which makes being understood palatable. If you can say at the end of the day, I did it God's way, you can lay your head down to the pillow at night and get a good rest if you're scriptural. So look at verse 14. Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Boy, what an opening. What's he going to say? First thing he says is, For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Hey, it's only nine in the morning. The bars aren't even open. These guys aren't drunk, but look what he says in verse 16. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now mark that, please. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. The authorized version says it better. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Why? Because they said, what is this? And he said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Beginning in verse 17 down to verse 21, he quotes the book of Joel. Verse 25 to 28, he quotes Psalm 16, the words of David. Verse 34 and 35, he quotes Psalm 110. He goes, this is what is written there, here's what's written here, and here's what is written there. Each time he is appealing to the scripture. This is not intoxication. This is fulfilled prediction. 
You are seeing what the scripture has been saying all along. So it's biblically based. We need to do the same. Every practice we employ, we should be able, when somebody says, why are you doing it that way? Because this is that which was spoken of in the scripture. Then it has a scriptural basis. See, if you truly want a biblical lifestyle, your life must have a biblical foundation. Did you know that 64 times, if you add up all the times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus referred to the Old Testament? He, even though he's God in human flesh, he pointed back to the Scripture. He could have said, well, I'm doing it that way because I want to do it that way. I'm Jesus. He quoted the Scripture. He banked on the Scripture. He said to Satan in the wilderness when he was tempted, It is written. John chapter 10, to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. This is Jesus speaking. Five times Jesus asked his dissenters, have you not read in the law? Have you not read what David said? So if the prophets did it, if Jesus did it, if Paul did it, if Peter did it, I guess you and I should do it. Uh, that's enough examples for me to say we should live scriptural lives. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. I leave you with a question. What do you think of scripture? Be careful how you answer it. It's a good book. I have one sitting on my coffee table, collecting dust every day. Oh, I dust it off from time to time. So people think I read it. Now, what do you think of Scripture, really? Because your answer determines your devotion to it. One of my favorite stories was given by a storyteller named Cindy Guthrie, who said, once I read a newspaper report about some people who survived a tornado. When the wind picked up the house, someone spontaneously cried out, N-E-M, N-E-M. Where does that come from? Wizard of Oz. She continues, he had so fully internalized the story of the Wizard of Oz that it influenced his response when a tornado appeared in his own life. Now, here's what I like about that. The Bible should be to us like the Wizard of God, Oz was to that guy. He's so internalized Wizard of Oz that it's like, and yeah, and yeah. So when something happens to us in our lives, what comes out? Well, a cuss word comes out. Okay, so that, that's a problem. The Bible should come out. When somebody bumps into you, whatever's in you comes out. And if the Bible's in you, it's going to come out. This is that which was spoken by the prophets. In fact, Spurgeon used to even say we should be so filled with the Scripture that when we get cut, we bleed Bibline. You know, we're B-positive, Bible-positive. It's, it's, it's a part of our, our system. Well, it's one thing to know the Bible. It's a whole other thing to know the author. I know some people who know the Bible so well, they're scholarly, but they don't really walk with, in relationship with its author all that closely. 
And if you don't know the author, I don't know. I think going through an international pandemic is a good time to get in touch with God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to celebrate what happened 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem. Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday. When the fulfillment of what our Lord Jesus promised came to pass. I will build my church. And we see after the foundation, the structure going up in that chapter. And here we are 2,000 years later celebrating the birth of a church while experiencing a rebirth of our own church. I pray, Lord, that we would, too, be filled with the Spirit, be empowered by the Spirit, that we would gush forth the life of God to a thirsty world, and that our lives would remain scriptural, though we go forward not ever expecting the world to completely get us, because the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. So we pray that you'd go before us and open up their hearts and open up their eyes and that they and we would have such a close relationship with the author of Scripture that we could say with integrity, it's because they know God, we know God, I know God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.